Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, welcome to the Bridgeway Podcast. We're really glad that you are joining us today. Uh, I've got with me uh, in the studio here, lead pastor at Bridgeway, Sam Storms, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, church governance and uh, and then especially gospel-centered governance. So uh, that's a that's a fun word to bring into the church, isn't it, Sam? Governance. That's what everybody wants to talk about. It is. <laughs> you don't hear the word government anymore. It's governance. Gover- oh, it used to be church government, but yeah. is this like softening it now? I guess so. <laughs> And then there's the other phrase, uh, church polity. Right. Right. Are there any other terms we need to be familiar with in this category? No, I, let's stay away from political and governmental. And great. So, yeah. so okay, governance and polity, that sounds better. <laughs> that's really funny, actually. Okay, great. So, um, man, there's this is a really wide topic. Uh, you know, here at Bridgeway, we, we don't have... We don't operate under a presbytery. We don't have cardinals. We, we are complementarian. There's a lot of distinctives in the realm of, of church polity and governance. And so uh, it's like, where do we begin sure. here in terms of like, what does biblical church governance look like from our point of view? And then how does the gospel inform that? Any clue on where you would want to start a conversation about this? Well, maybe the best place to start is just to, to kind of lay out the uh, landscape within uh, the professing Christian church about different kinds of polity. Okay. Uh, and, and again, I think maybe even up front, I would want to say, although as you'll soon hear, I believe I have some strong convictions about this. I think the Bible is clear. I don't make this a first order doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, I don't uh, separate from my Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Congregationalist friends over this issue. We'll we'll have some heated in, interaction on it, but this isn't an issue of well, if I don't believe it the way Sam does, I'm not going to go to heaven type right. of issue. Let's yeah. be real clear about that. But that doesn't mean it's not important because it is. Uh, but generally speaking, there are three broad categories of uh, polity or governance in the church, and then there are kind of some variations within them. There is one that I think a lot of our people listening would be familiar with that we would call congregationalism or right. congregational rule. Um, most of your Southern Baptist churches, you know, one of these days I'm going to have to check whether it's most or just many because <laughs> there's so many of them that are that are beginning to implement a, a plurality, plurality of elders. elders. Yeah. But uh, at least at present, I would say the majority of Southern Baptist churches, and historically so, mm-hmm. are congregationally ruled. And what that simply means is that the final and decisive authority in all church matters rests with the congregation. So if, uh, if you want to hire a, a new staff member or perhaps even fire one, these are matters that are brought to the congregation, and they vote just like you know we vote at an election um, and usually majority rules. Sometimes uh, the bylaws of these congregations uh, would call on on some votes for like a two-thirds mm-hmm. or three-fourths majority. Um, so congregational rule is, I, I think there are elements of congregationalism that I would embrace and agree with, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Okay. 
another form of polity is episcopal. Uh, and according to the, by the way, in case people are wondering, um, the English word episcopal or episcopalian comes from the Greek episkopos, which is usually translated in the New Testament as bishop or overseer. It depends on what English translations mm-hmm. you're looking at. And in this case, uh, the final authority in a local church is vested first in ordained clergy or pastors, but even more so in a bishop who has authority over that pastor. And in fact, a bishop who would have authority over multitudes of uh, 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 several congregations within a what they might call a diocese. Mm-hmm. And then in some forms of Episcopalian government, there would be an archbishop who would have ultimate authority over the many bishops who would then have authority over the pastors within uh, the local church. And oftentimes, those ordained pastors are called priests, and okay, yeah. uh, not in the same sense in which a Roman Catholic right. would use the word, but they are still called priests. Then there is Presbyterian or representative government, uh, and it's important to remember it's not just Presbyterians who embrace this, right. because here at Bridgeway, we are Presbyterian in the sense that we believe that governmental authority is vested in a body of elders, plurality of elders, mm-hmm. not just one individual. So, for example, here at Bridgeway, we tell people this all the time, uh, Sam is not the CEO. Uh, yeah. Sam does not get his way just because he wants it. Um, I have one vote on the Board of Elders. Now, yes, when it comes down to practicalities, do the elders look to me for counsel and input and defer to me on some matters? Yes. But they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been times when uh, I have been voted down. I've lost a vote. And uh, it's a humbling thing, but it's I think it's healthy. It's good accountability. Mm-hmm. So um, Presbyterian forms of government um, basically look to a plurality of elders uh, with varying degrees of congregational participation. So now I'm going to circle back around. And maybe the best way to do it is just to explain the way we do it here at Bridgeway. We have at, at present 11 governing elders. We have about four or five non-governing elders. And the reason why we use that language is because we believe once a man is elected to the office of elder, he's always an elder. Mm. But we have a rotation system where Uh, And it would be too complex for me to go into, but some elders will serve three-year terms and then they rotate off a year. Some serve four, some serve five. And we had to do it that way uh, because we had some years in which we would have four or five elders rotate off all at once. Oh, yeah. And we were left shorthanded. So uh, it's basically the distinction between first-time lay elders, returning lay elders, and staff pastors as elders. And they all have differing term limits, as it were. Now, the, the final um, authority to govern the local body here at Bridgeway is that Board of Elders. However, we do uh, recognize some elements of congregational authority. For example, I think it's pretty clear in the New Testament that in matters of church discipline, which reach that final stage, um, in other words, you've gone through the process of appealing to a person who's in sin and and you hope they will repent. But if you get to the final stage where they adamantly refuse to repent, then I think you bring it before the entire covenant membership of a local body, as we would here. And you present the case, you give them the facts, and I believe the church as a whole, the membership as a whole, would then have the decisive voice on how to proceed in terms of discipline. Um, So that is one area where Um, we would uh, acknowledge the New Testament does speak about congregational participation. And if people are wondering, um, 
maybe the best text would be 2 Corinthians 2, um, where, is it 2 or 1? I'm going blank here, but I'm, I'll, look in, I'll look it up in just a minute. 2 Corinthians 1 or 2, um, where Paul is talking about restoring to fellowship um, a man who had uh, been in sin. And Paul is saying, you know, the process has worked. This individual um, has, in fact, repented, and you need to receive him back into your fellowship. Actually, it is chapter 2. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it now. Um, beginning in about verse 5, extending down to about verse 11. And it says in verse 6, for such a one, that is the man who had been, in a sense, excommunicated, this punishment or discipline by the majority mm-hmm. is enough. And notice Paul appeals to the whole church. So you, the Corinthian church, not just the elders, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So it seems that that's at least one text which vests within the congregation an authority on the either excommunication or the reconciliation of of a person who's been caught in sin. Okay. So before we dive into because we're going to have to just dive into some of the, the biblical texts for um, why we choose um, a Presbyterian approach to church governance over another. Um, what would you say to the person who's listening to this and going, um, why should I care about church government at all mm-hmm. and church polity at all? Um, can't we all just you know, be in the church together or do, do we need this kind of a structure? And um, yeah, what would you say to that kind of a person? Well, there's several things. Um, first of all, we need to ask the question, does the Bible actually address the issue? Mm-hmm. Now, there are some who say, um, and it doesn't take long to convince them otherwise, but they will say, I, the Bible doesn't talk about this. It's just not that important. It doesn't, it doesn't map out, as it were, a very explicit structure mm-hmm. for local church governance. And I would just have to push back and say, oh, I believe it does. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are a multiplicity of texts that talk about what I believe is a plurality of elders who govern the life of the local body. Um, Then also, if there is no governance at all, it seems that the alternative is typically going to be chaos. Mm. Uh, In other words, there has to be someone or some body, whether it's one individual or a multiplicity of individuals or an entire congregation, that has to make some very decisive um, choices in what a church is to do, whether to buy property, um, you know, what they are to believe and practice with regard to spiritual gifts. Mm. Are they going to be infant baptizers or believe, or embrace believers baptism? These kinds of decisions have to be made by someone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I read the new Testament, it seems pretty clear to me, uh, that there is a very clear pattern and model for governance. In fact, let me just give one passage that yeah. uh, that I think really is is helpful in this regard. And in fact, um, it, it's also a passage that answers the question: What in the world do we mean by gospel-centered governance mm-hmm. or gospel-centered polity? And it's in Acts chapter twenty, where Paul has called the elders of the church at Ephesus together. And um, he talks about the ministry that he had among them. And he says in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So notice that the underlying motivation for his ministry is the gospel of the grace of God and to make proclamation of that. And he says, 
if that puts my life in jeopardy, if that exposes me to, to imprisonment or punishment or maybe even martyrdom, I don't care because I value fulfilling this ministry to make the gospel known more than my own personal comfort or even personal existence. But then he continues and he says in verse 28, something so very important. I think most people know this text. He says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now it's interesting. We typically put emphasis on pay careful attention to all the flock. Mm. And we need to stop. And anybody who serves as an elder needs to hear what Paul's saying. He's saying, pay careful attention to yourself mm-hmm. and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, two, three really important things here. First of all, the flocks need, the flock needs careful attention. Careful attention, yeah. Um, That's good. It, it, sheep tend to wander. And as we all know, Christians <laughs> tend to wander and they can fall into deceptive doctrines or unrepentant sin. They need pastoral shepherding and care. Second, it's the Holy Spirit who has made you overseers. And there's the word, uh, the translation of that Greek word there is episkopos. But elsewhere, Paul calls them elders. So we Mm -hmm. see that the words are interchangeable. But Paul is saying, okay, you're going to push back and say, why is this important? Because God himself, through the Holy Spirit, is the one who's raised you up. Mm. He's the one who's called you. He's the one who has equipped you and qualified you to serve in this regard. So how can we ignore that Mm -hmm. or say that it really doesn't matter? And then lastly, he says you're to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I think that sounds strange because people say, wait a minute, God doesn't have blood. (laughs) I think the more accurate translation would be, which he obtained with the blood of his own and his own is a reference to Jesus. Jesus yeah. It's so why is it important that we have a gospel-centered, biblically tethered um, approach to government? For the simple fact that God so loved these people, this flock, these churches, that he would sacrifice his own son and have his own son shed his blood to redeem them from sin. Now, if that doesn't uh, stir your heart with with um absolute conviction about the importance of the church of Jesus Christ, nothing will. Yeah. People say, you know, they say, I, I I can be a Christian on my back porch, just me and nature and, and my Bible or me and Jesus. Why, why do I need the church? And I point them to this text. I say, mm. do you realize the lengths to which your God and Heavenly Father went mm-hmm. to deliver Christians from sin and death? He, he sacrificed his own son. Jesus willingly offered himself up. That's how much God thinks about the church. Therefore, that's how much we ought to think about it. We ought to be concerned about the life of the local church, how the people are led and pastored and governed, uh, simply because God has entrusted to those leaders the care for the people that he cared so much about himself, or that he himself cared so much about, that he would give his son to die for them. I think that's extremely helpful in terms of what do we mean by by gospel-centered governance? We mean that um, God bought the church with his with the blood of his son, and then I think what was most helpful for me that you pointed out in here is that, and then he raised up these overseers by the Holy Spirit. That the reason why 
um, he wants his church governed is like, why should we care about that is because he is making leaders in it through his Holy Spirit. Like yes. I, that's, that's amazing. It's not a man-made invention, I think is the thing that is most like is catching me most off guard here where it, it wasn't just like, oh, this is just do your, do your, you know, your, your good prudence and make sure you, uh, organize the board and mm-hmm. all those things that you would do with a business. I'm sitting here going like, oh yeah, boards and rotations sure. and all the, it seems very much like a, oh, does that just look like, um, a business, but it's like, oh, we see here that in order to care for the church that God bought with the blood of his son, he sent his Holy Spirit to raise up elders over it. He knows right. what he's doing, and like the flock needs care. I think all that goes together really well. That was extremely helpful for me. Yeah. And not only that, but when he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and you know, inquiring minds will ask, <laughs> how did he do that? Right. How do we know mm. who, which ones among the many people in our church has the Holy Spirit raised up to, to serve in that capacity? And that's, of course, why Paul elsewhere gives qualifications, why right. he gives us very clear instruction and direction on how that's to be done. Mm. So, in fact, I just throw this in. Um, here at Bridgeway, uh, we're about to do what we do every year. In fact, starting this coming Sunday and for three consecutive Sundays, we put in our bulletin an insert that talks about the process by which elders are recognized mm-hmm. and elected. We'll list the qualifications uh, here's where we seek the input of the congregation. So this is another congregational dimension to our form of government. We ask them to submit names of anyone they think is qualified to serve in this capacity. And we do that over three weeks, and then the elder board processes and prays and meets with those individuals. Sometimes we'll bring somebody on the board immediately. More often now what we do is we spend I spend about a year with those individuals, mm. as I'm doing right now with two men, and we go through... Uh, the the bylaws of the church. We talk about church government. We talk about the dynamics of an elder meeting and what they are expected to do. And then um, we present those nominees to the church. They have three weeks in which to respond because sometimes someone might know uh, something about an individual that we don't that might call into question their Mm -hmm. suitability to serve at that time. But once we have finalize that slate, we bring it uh, to the church at the annual covenant members meeting in January for ratification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's really helpful to walk through. Okay, so um, now we'll circle back to the question now that we've tried to preempt some of the uh, the underlying mm-hmm. uh, objections and go, um, okay, so why then at Bridgeway do we practice the model that we practice over against congregationalism sure. or anything like that? Sure. Yep. I, I was raised Southern Baptist, so I understand that system, and in some cases it seems to work well. Personally, I think it's unwise to have one person exerting that kind of unilateral authority. Now, a lot of Southern Baptists are going to push back right now. I can hear them. I can hear them through the headset, David. I can just, the vibrations are coming right They're back. They're screaming. They're they got, screaming yeah. at me, Sam. He doesn't have unilateral authority. He and who's is, this he that we're talking about? The senior pastor. The senior pastor, okay. He is accountable to the board of deacons. Mm. And in many Southern Baptist churches, that's true. The board of deacons functions very much like a board of elders. Mm-hmm. But if you pushed them up against the wall, they would admit, oh, we have one elder. It's the senior pastor. In other churches, the board of deacons really doesn't function well at all. Mm. They are there to implement what the senior pastor wants done. Now, I'm not here to criticize other models. I love my Southern Baptist heritage. Um, But why plurality of elders? There are numerous biblical texts. Let me just give a couple of them. Okay. 
Acts 14.23. Here's a description of um, Paul and Barnabas who are traveling uh, from city to city, and it says this, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And there are many other texts that refer to elders, plural, in every church. So when, when people ask me, why do you have a plurality of elders? I would simply say, give me an example of a local church in the New Testament where there was only one elder, mm. where there was not a plurality of elders functioning. Um, you know, numerous other texts. For example, um, um, Titus chapter 1, mm-hmm. verse 5. Paul's writing to Titus. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed to you. James 5.14, you know, the passage about prayer for the sick. Mm-hmm. I exhort the, uh, he says, uh, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. First um, Peter 5, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. First um, Peter 5.5, 5, you younger men, be subject to your elders. So whether it's the Greek word presbyteros, mm-hmm. from which we get Presbyterian, it right. means it kind of points to the gravity and the dignity of the office. Okay. Episkopos looks more to the function. It kind of means overseer. Mm-hmm. Those words are interchangeable, and there are many texts that reveal that. It seems clear to me that in every case in the New Testament, we have a plurality of elders governing the local church. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I can hear the vibrations of questions <laughs> through the airwaves. They say, but what about the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3? Oh, uh, that and that opens up a whole new can of worms. But each letter is addressed to the angel, angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. the angel of the church in Laodicea, and so on. And there have been some, in fact, I might even say most Southern Baptist theologians who would point to that and say, well, that angel there simply means the senior pastor, the single elder of the church. Well, one of the problems you have with that, well, there's a couple of problems. Number one, uh, the word angel is used 70 or 80 times in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And in every single other instance, it's referring to angels, right. spiritual beings um, who do God's will and work in the earth. Secondly, one of the letters is addressed to the church in Ephesus. And we know from Acts 20 that Ephesus was governed by a plurality of elders. Mm-hmm. So... When he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, um, it obviously can't be referring to a single elder because we know from other texts they had a plurality of elders. Right. We know that also from First uh, and Second Timothy because Timothy was ministering in uh, in Ephesus. Mm. So uh, it's highly unlikely that the angel uh, of the church is a reference to the senior pastor or the single elder. Um, there are other reasons. It it may well be that an that Part of the ministry of angels is to provide oversight and as a, and almost in a sense of a guardian role over each local church. That's possible. Some say we ought to translate it to the angel, which is the church. In other words, the church is itself corporately a messenger, a sent one of mm-hmm. God to make known the gospel and to bear witness to Jesus. Honestly, we really don't know. Yeah. But the idea that the angel 
you know, I'm, I'm here tempted to say something. And I'm like <laughs> asking myself, should I say it? Yeah, I think I will. <laughs> I've known a few uh, senior pastors who were angels. I've known a few who were demons. <laughs> and oh, so I don't, well, that's just neither here nor there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not inclined to think that that is a good justification for ignoring mm-hmm. the multiplicity of right. other texts that talk about a plurality of elders. Okay. Um, I think that's really helpful. Um, I think where I'm, I'm going now in my, in my where, what, the questions that are coming, coming in my head now are, are more around the, the idea of function. I, I feel like we've talked a lot about format or mm-hmm. like what type of government and, what, and, and we've talked about the underlying need for it. Um, but what, um, what, what, are, what do these leaders do? What, what's their role in the church? Is it just to decide if we're going to buy property and, you mm. know, to get insurance or not, or to put in new stage lights, or, you know, it, it all seems kind of mundane if you look at it like that. Um, what, why, why are they there? What are they, what are they doing? What, what's their commission um, as sure. overseers and shepherds? Well, let's just go back to the Acts 20 passage. There, Paul says, pay careful attention to the flock to care for the church. Mm. The Greek word there is it's the verb form of pastor, pastor, Mm -hmm. shepherd the church. So what does a shepherd do? He guards, he protects from uh, the attack of animals, he feeds, he nourishes, um, he loves the flock. Uh, I think also, for example, of uh, uh, Titus chapter 1, where Paul is giving instruction to elders And he says, uh, for example, in one place, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders are responsible. And it doesn't mean that other Christians can't do that as well, Mm, at least in their interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. But the elders have a responsibility to understand biblical truth to such a degree that they can teach it and they can recognize and refute error. Mm-hmm. Um, then you also have, of course, the, the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there Paul says that an elder must be able to teach. Um, it says that he must be able to govern uh, the local church. He says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So, And so is that more, is that govern language? Is that more of like more of like a government decision type of, making a decision yeah. making okay yeah. so that is kind of the minutia like yes that's involved in it too it's not yeah. all hyper spiritual it's right. also someone's got to make decisions yeah yeah later in first timothy 5:17 let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching so all elders rule some mm-hmm. just do it better than others so there's a there's a ruling dimension hmm. um, another hebrews 13:17 uh, the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Mm. And that is a heavy, heavy. heavy responsibility to, to stop and think that I'm going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going to give an account for the welfare and the development and the nourishment of the souls placed yeah. under my care. That, that, that gives ought to give every man pause before he ponders whether or not he yeah. wants to embrace that that position. And then uh, 1 Peter 5, another place where he says, shepherd the flock of God. Again, pastor it. Pastor or shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but Mm -hmm. willingly as God would have you. Uh, He goes on, don't domineer over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Yeah. 
So there's all these elements of shepherding, oversight, feeding, teaching, alerting people to error, nourishing them, loving them, caring for them, um, uh, maintaining an accountability for the welfare of their souls, all of those things which are very pastoral in nature. In other words, the, all elders are pastors. Make no mistake about that. Right. Not all pastors are necessarily elders. Right. Um, so the New Testament seems pretty clear that there is a very grave, serious, weighty responsibility. Again, like I said, not just for making decisions on what color of carpet in the auditorium. <laughs> right. Um, which, by the way, the last time we put in new carpeting, I don't think the elders ever saw it before it was installed. <laughs> we kind of let our church administrator take care of that. Um, not just questions about you know whether to buy a piece of property or when to repave the parking lot, although mm -hmm. those are decisions that have to be made, but rather the pastoral care, the oversight, the nourishment, the protection of the individual members of any particular congregation. That's the, the primary function that they serve. One thing that's just rattling in my head here, as I said, right to it. I'm like, I know I agree with that, but it, it might be something that other people are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said something that I'm having trouble push, putting together. So, uh, you know, we said that um, all elders are pastors, mm -hmm. but not all pastors are elders. For, for some people, I feel like there's there's like two sides that people yep. might be going like, aren't you splitting hairs on the one side? And the other side may be like, uh, prove it. Or, you know, and trust me, uh, <laughs> most of the people listening to this disagree with me on that. Yeah, point. that's why I wanted to come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Seeking controversy where it can be found. Um, and, and let me just mention a couple of reasons why I believe that to be the case. Okay. First of all, nobody's disputing that all elders pastor. Right. Because yep. Peter says to mm -hmm. the elders, pastor, pastor yeah. the, the church, yeah. Acts 20 28 pastor the flock mm -hmm. um, of God that the Lord purchased with the blood of his own son. So all uh, when, when, so when you're evaluating whether a man is qualified to be an elder, you have to ask the question, is he gifted pastorally? Uh, does he have that tender-hearted, loving mm -hmm. care, nurturing uh, spirit uh, in which he can uh, help the flock grow up in Christ? Now, the interesting thing is, would we necessarily conclude that everyone who is a pastor would have to serve as an elder? And if they don't, we shouldn't call them a pastor. Well, we need to ask the question, is pastor an office or a gift? Right. That's what I, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yep. And I tend to think it's a gift. Yeah. Um, I think Ephesians 4.11 indicates that God gave gifts to the church. And one of them that he mentions is the pastor teacher. Mm. Um a little bit of the problem here is that, uh, as, as best I can tell, the only place in the New Testament where the noun of pastor, pastor is uh -huh. is found is Ephesians four eleven. Okay, the only and that's place, the, and that's the only, and that is going through roles there, isn't it? Uh, it seems to be because he talks about evangelists. Evangelist right. in an office—that's a gift. That's oh yeah yeah so yeah it is it's gifts yeah prophets yeah. I think is a gift I don't I don't I don't think the New Testament explicitly talks about the office of a of prophet. A prophet. Um, so, so that's the only place the noun occurs. 
there are at least mm. two places where the verb appears, and we've already mentioned them, Acts yep. 20, 28, and 1 Peter 5, where he exhorts elders to pastor. So um, I, let me just, I'll just narrow this down and, uh, and explain it in the way that it works here at Bridgeway. We have uh, a handful of individuals on staff who are pastors, and they have incredible pastoral gifting, but they aren't necessarily elders because mm-hmm. it might be that uh, they need to spend a little bit more time in ministry. Maybe the, their experience is has been limited. Um, it might even be, uh, you know, that there may be um, some other matter that uh, it, at least has, for a time being, disqualified them. And, and I don't like these word disqualified. Let's right. just say that they have not attained. Maybe uh, it's not that they're in open sin, but they haven't attained the level of maturity and wisdom and insight and theological acumen that they would necessarily be suitable for the office of elder. But that doesn't mean that they're not pastoral or pastors. Yeah. So let me ask this question. So then, uh, so then are there people who are, have the gift of being pastoral in our congregation who aren't on staff as pastors. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I think that's very helpful. Yeah, I, our community groups, our absolutely. small groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, you lead one. Yes. You are very pastoral. Mm. I think you have the gift of pastoring. But at this time, you're not an elder. Right. And there are dozens of others yes. who, who function. Um, some of our counselors, for example, yes. who are incredibly pastoral and insightful and encouraging um, and, and very clear-headed when it comes to, to biblical truth, but they either haven't been called as elders or they don't feel as if they are equipped to, to be elders. Maybe one day they would be. Um, now, I'm going to get real controversial here. Okay. You ready? I was about to, too, so right. let's see where you're going. Somebody's saying, well, if that's the case, Sam, then can women that's be I was pastors? Going. Yep, right. And ho- buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> yes, I yes, believe they can. Absolutely. Uh, because I believe that pastor is a gift. Yes, I, and I, I'll just I'll just mention her name. Okay, okay go for it. Because I know you've done podcasts with Krista Meyer. Yes, who oversees our kids ministry. Right. Krista has about seven or eight women who serve under her leadership in various areas of uh, children's ministry. She is incredibly pastoral. Oh yes, insightful, theologically um, uh, educated, uh, wise, uh, tender, and also firm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't have any problem calling Krista a pastor. Now, right. we typically don't just because we want to avoid the controversy <laughs> that it would uh, create because we would have so many questions and we'd have to go through this explanation over and over right. and over again. But the day may come where we think, look, yeah. to heck with the controversy. It's worth it. Yeah. Uh, let, 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 let's call it what it is. Call a spade and, a spade here. Yeah. And so, um, you know, at this present time, for example, uh, our director of student ministries, our pastor of student ministries, Seth Stewart, mm-hmm. best youth pastor I've ever met oh in my, my life. Goodness, yes. He's just awesome. Um, Seth is a young man. This is his first time in ministry. Um, I can very easily foresee the day when he would uh, be brought on the elder mm-hmm. board, but not right now. But that doesn't mean we're not going to call him a pastor because right. he certainly is a pastor to those students. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that's extremely helpful, and that's exactly where I was going. I think that's that's really helpful to say that, uh, of course, women can be pastors. They can they have the gift of being pastoral and the gift of being prophetesses, and on and on and on it goes. There's you know the 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 gifts of the spirit don't you know they're don't, not gender they're, they're not gender specific. Yeah, right. exactly. So let's. Let's go there. Let's let's ask the question. You sure we're that, not out of time yet. We are out of time, but we're going to do it anyway. No, um, 
let, let's go there and let's let's talk about um, why male only elders. Sure. Okay. Before I do that, I want to I want to say something real clear uh, and forceful um, from the depths of my heart. Here at Bridgeway, we want to equip and release and empower women into every area of ministry except that which the New Testament explicitly forbids. Okay. So we have a very open-handed kind of broad perspective on complementarianism. Mm -hmm. We have women who co-lead groups with their husbands. We have women who prophesy. They lead worship. We actually have women who baptize their children. Mm -hmm. They serve communion. I know that a lot of our Presbyterian and more uh, traditional folk who are listening to this are about to pull their hair out when they hear that. But all I can say is give me a text of Scripture that says they can't do that. Right. And I, I challenge you to give me one. And if you give me one, we'll change our practice. Mm-hmm. But So we want to empower, equip, and release women into every area of ministry except where the New Testament is explicit. And on this issue, I think it's explicit. Mm-hmm. And I have three reasons. Okay. Number one has to do with the function of elders. We are told, as we talked a moment ago, they are those who govern or rule in the church. Um. And they are primarily, not only that, but they are also primarily responsible for teaching, the formal teaching uh, role. And I do believe, maybe we can do a podcast on this verse someday. Mm. I do believe 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, restricts the official teaching office, what I typically do on a Sunday morning, mm. in the exercise of that authority, which is vested in the elders, to men only. Now, you need to under, people need to understand we solicit and seek out energetically the counsel, the advice and the input of women all the time. Mm. Um, we, we try as much as possible to bring women into elders meetings. Give us your perspective. Help us understand this in a way that perhaps only you can see it. Mm. So we highly value their wisdom and their insight. But it does seem to me, given the fact that the primary function of elders is governance and teaching, and those in First Timothy 2 are restricted to men. Second, uh, I would appeal to the qualifications for elders. Uh, when you read in First Timothy 3, Titus 1, uh, we are told that the hel- an elder must be the husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty clear, pretty explicit. Also, it says that an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So, first of all, it's the function of elders. Secondly, the qualification for elders. And then the third is that we have absolutely no reference whatsoever anywhere in the New Testament to a female elder. Mm. Uh, We have female co-workers who served alongside Paul. I believe in female deacons. Mm Um, prophetesses, or prophetesses. Mentioned. Yeah, Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Uh, the, how people met in someone's house. Oh yeah, the house met in Lydia's house, Lydia's Priscilla's house. house. Right. So um, I certainly do believe uh, that women uh, can have all the spiritual gifts and they can function, including in... the gift of teaching. Yes. Oh, okay. absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I think that's where it gets a little fuzzy for for a lot of people. Is, is that it's like okay, so I can be endued with this gift of teaching and the gift of pastoring, but I can't teach on Sunday morning is, is that I mean you know that's kind of where it gets I think that's where yeah, the rub and, is for and, a lot of people and even and again this gets us into a, a bigger broader issue that we probably don't have time for but sure. uh, that doesn't mean that we wouldn't um, put a woman on the platform on a Sunday morning right we do that all the time uh, yeah. who, who has uh, a testimony to share or even takes the entire time to encourage us in some particular area of life and ministry 
Um, I, I tend to fall back on something I heard my friend John Piper say that's mm. just been very helpful. Now, for some people, it's going to feel too subjective and slippery. But when Piper was pressed uh, on when is it inappropriate for a woman to um, or, or when is it too regular or too common for a woman to speak on a Sunday morning, for example, or at a conference. And John said, when the men in the church start to look to that individual as the primary shepherd of their souls, hmm. then we've probably crossed a line. Hmm. And I like that because when we have women share and speak and encourage and even prophesy, nobody at Bridgeway is saying, ah, that's the pastor of my soul. That's the person to whom I look to primarily to nourish me and feed me and to whom I'm going to submit my life. But if you ever do it to such a degree that that is the conclusion you're drawing, it just might, it just might be a red flag. Mm. It's, it's, you know, and, and where that line is drawn might vary from individual to individual. Yeah. And I, that's why I said it's subjective. It's slippery. Sure. But um, so I, I would just simply say that given the, um, the absence in Scripture of any reference to a female elder functioning in any church, and given these other two points I just made, um, uh, I'm going to hold the line there until somebody can tell me I've misinterpreted these texts. Okay, I I have I do have two more questions. Uh, this is going to be just a slightly longer episode because it's just a lot to cover, and I don't it, this one won't take too long. These two, um, my two questions are this, and you can take one or both, in whichever order you want, or neither, or neither, and okay. we can just end it right here. <laughs> uh, one is. Um, I just feel like a lot of people are going to feel heavy after listening to all, to, to all of that. Um, either that or it's funny because it'll be on either side. Some people feel heavy, like, oh, that feels oppressive. The other people are like, Sam, you're way too liberal. You know, it'll be, yep. it's just, that's just how it is. Welcome to the church world. Yes. Um, so I, I just would like us to circle back around and go, uh, what does the gospel say to male-only leaders? And is, is there anything that um, that the gospel has to speak in to, to that that we should end on that might help us? Uh, and then secondly, maybe we want to start here and then end with the gospel, uh, is what would you say to someone who brings up the cultural argument against male-only leadership, that it was a patriarchal society and therefore um, it, it, that's, why, that, that's why the texts are this way, that it was Paul was a, a sure. big meanie? The first one, uh, let's, let's not restrict it to elders. Let's just talk about men mm. and talk about how that's a gospel issue. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives— as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Yeah. What is the standard? What, what's the, the measure of how I love my wife and sacrifice for her and serve her? And yes, husbands, you should serve your wives. Yes. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Yeah. We imitate Christ by laying down our lives for our wives. And um, so what's the foundation for that? We look at how Christ loved the church and made the ultimate sacrifice for her. And that's the standard by which men should view women. And this idea that male headship involves domineering, right. making every decision, being weighted on hand and foot. You know, I just want to slap those guys upside the head and mm -hmm. say, come on, fella. That, that is not Christ-like behavior. No. Um, and then the second question, just the cultural dynamic. I think the only... Let's acknowledge, let's be open, real mm. honest about this. Are there cultural dimensions in the biblical documents that we have to take into consideration when we interpret them and try to apply them 2,000 years later? Mm -hmm. Of course. Yep. Massive subject. 
Um, but the question we have to ask is, in the particular text we're looking at, are there cultural reasons to which the apostle appeals? So when you look at 1 Corinthians 11 right. or you look at 1 Timothy 2, in what does Paul ground his exhortation or his belief about the relationship of male and female? And it's not in culture. It's not in the lack of education in the day in which he was writing. Mm. It is in the way God created male and female and ordained from the Garden of Eden that, mm-hmm. uh, the manner in which they should relate to each other. So, y- yes, there are cultural features we always have to think about, but are those th- the, the reasons to which Paul himself or others would appeal in order to justify their instruction? Mm. And the answer is no. Yeah. That's that's really helpful. That's also one of the shortest answers I've had. I've heard to that one, which which is really helpful. I think every time I'm I, I'm brought into that conversation, it takes me about thirty minutes to, <laughs> to try to give a defense. So that's really helpful to have that. Um, wow. Well, thank you, thank you, Sam. This was this was extremely helpful. We covered a lot today. We really did. Yeah, we did. Um, but I think it's great. So so thank you. This is this is going to wrap up our short little series we've done here on ecclesiology. So um, we we've got to cover. Uh, the local church, and we've got to cover what is gospel-centered church. We've got to cover now church governance. So uh, that's fun, and uh, I'm excited to have you on next time. But until then, uh, thank you guys for listening, and we will uh, see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bridgewayokc, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchokc. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.